please open up your Bibles again to 1 Thessalonians. And we will be in chapter 2, verse 14. Verse 14, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, where you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown or exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you know how how helpless we are, how limited our knowledge. We cannot speak except by your grace. We cannot teach apart from Your help, that all the efforts of the flesh are nothing. Lord, we have such a need of grace tonight, manifested in understanding Your Word and in the power to to imitate it, to conform to it. Lord, so many sermons But I pray that this night there would be help for Your people. We would genuinely see this passage, Your Word, and be helped by it, changed by it, moved along. But Lord, not by might, not by power, not by eloquence, not by wisdom of men, but by Your Spirit, Lord. We cry out, Lord, That by Your Spirit, You would aid us. You would help us. You would change us. Lord, our desire is not to be smart, but to be conformed to Your image. The true wisdom of walking in a manner worthy of You, worthy of our calling. Help us, Lord. And Lord, guide me. Apart from Your aid, I'll be nothing more than a seething demonstration of flesh. Lord, vanquish, overcome. Help us. In Jesus' name, Amen. As in my prayer, I always want to remind you that the purpose of preaching is not just the communication of truth. That is an important thing, but it is is not the goal. The goal is that 
that I be transformed by the word I'm preaching, that you be transformed by the word you're hearing. Regardless of the smallness of the man or the the weakness of his words, realize that if anything is said tonight that is of the will of God, you are responsible for it. You should take it to heart. You should be changed. That's what I desire. I know that's what you desire, that we would be changed. I want to be like Him. I'm tired of knowing so much. Being able to live so little. But by the power of His Spirit, we can. We can. And it's with that hope we're going to look at this tonight. In verse 14, he says, For you, brethren. Now the word for, again, that's linking us back to verse 13. And what is happening in verse 13? He is thanking God because these, these Thessalonians had truly received the Word of God. Now, how do we know that it was true? It's almost as though Paul is basing this entire relationship between 13 and 14 on the parable of the sower. We know it is true that they truly received the Word because they continued in the Word in spite of affliction, in spite of trial. Isn't that what the parable of the sower says? That some apparently and only apparently received the Word. It wasn't real. It was superficial. And when affliction and trial and tribulation came, they departed from that Word. Even though at first they received it with joy. But that's not the case with the Thessalonians. They truly received it and they received it in affliction. And they continued walking in the Word in spite of affliction. I think that many of you here tonight are that way. I really believe that. That, that even though we haven't suffered persecution and we haven't suffered physical hardships or the things that many believers around the world have suffered, in the times of, of our small affliction and in the times of doubt and even those times when maybe you're tempted to even turn away to some degree from a hard following after Christ, you think to yourself, where will I go? I have nothing else. I can't. Depart from Him. He alone has the words of life. You see? You've been through that, some of you. You've thought, I just can't go on. But then, what? You can't let go. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful thing. Now, something else I want to point out here, that in verse 13, Paul is thanking God that they received the Word. He's thanking God. You say, well, of course. But now I want you to look at it in this context. The very word that they received for which Paul is thanking God caused untold hardship in the life of these believers. Now, how can Paul thank God for something that ultimately resulted in horrible persecution, suffering, isolation? How can he do that? There's only one way. Because Paul had his eye on eternity. He had his eye on eternity. It wasn't like so many preachers today that were peddling a gospel that with this gospel, everything in your life, this life, this earthly existence will be made wonderful if you'll just receive this Word. Paul didn't think that way. Paul actually tells them by receiving this Word, 
you're going to suffer. But hold on. Because this life is not our best life. There's one coming that will be revealed when Christ is revealed in glory. And therefore, hold on. We live for another reality. We live for another existence. In one sense, we live for another time. Now, whenever a preacher starts saying that, people always start saying, well, you're, you're just talking a little bit too heavenly here. And if you're so heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good. Well, I want to tell you something. Church history proves that idea to be totally wrong. It was the men and women who were most concerned about eternity that did the most good here on this planet. Why? They were willing to sacrifice everything that they were and everything that they had for the benefit of others because they knew another time was coming with a Messiah, with a Christ who was coming and with him would come a great reward. You see, the way that you can live in this community of believers and, and sacrifice and give and be kind even to those who hate you is because you know that He will return. And with His return, your life, it doesn't end. Your life begins, my friend. It begins. Now, He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul refers to them as brethren, and this is very important. He is, he is reminding them of their fraternal, familial relationship. That these believers are in the midst of great suffering. And what they need to understand is this. They're not alone. But they have Paul and the other workers and they have countless believers in other cities, even as far as Judea, that although they do not see their face, those believers are praying for them. Now, in the midst of suffering, one of the things that we really need to always understand is that we're not alone. We have the presence of Christ and we do have other believers that are around us that love us and they're praying for us. You see, it is the work of the devil. It is always the work of a wolf to do what? Isolate a sheep. And when you've isolated that sheep, and usually it's a wounded sheep, then go after them. But in the midst of your suffering, realize this. You're not alone. His presence is with you. And there are other brothers and sisters who love you, who are praying for you, and you can call upon them. You can. That's what it means to be in a church. And he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. In what way? Suffering. Now, I want you to look back at chapter 1 and look at verse 6. For you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Here he's saying that they had become imitators of the apostles and of the Lord with regard to character, with regard to action and character. And now he's going to say, you have also become imitators of us and in a sense of the Lord and of the churches in what way? In suffering. And this is what you need to understand. Remember what Paul told Timothy. All those who truly desire to live a godly, a righteous life in Christ Jesus, in this fallen world, will be persecuted. 
That persecution will be in differing degrees. But make no mistake about it. If you seek to imitate the character of Christ, you will have to experience some of the sufferings of this Christ because this fallen world will not tolerate someone who wants to be righteous. It will not. Now, don't go out there and seek to be persecuted. You don't have to do that. You ought to be kind. You ought to be loving. You ought to be sociable. You ought to be reaching out. And you ought to be gracious. So many believers are persecuted because they're not gracious. They're just constantly think it's their, their, their role in life to point out every error that is committed around them and every false word that is spoken. That's not true. But if you live a gracious, godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. And in the midst of that, again, I want to remind you of something. In the midst of all your suffering, don't allow yourself to become isolated. Yes, there are some burdens that you alone must bear. Yes, we should not be. It is true, we should not be the type of believer that is always like a sponge and always feeding off everyone else without giving back. But all of us, from the weakest to the strongest, have times when we will not, God has designated it, that we will not be able to make it unless we call upon another believer. I want to read to you some text. Just, just listen. Romans 12:15 Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's what a church is. Did you know that? That when another believer rejoices, we rejoice. When another believer weeps, we weep. The whole idea of compassion, com, the Latin means with, passion, suffer, suffer with, but also rejoice with. You see, also a more drastic verse, Hebrews 13, 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Remember those who are hurting. Make yourself aware of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are suffering so that you can properly pray for them. Don't just think. Just because you live here and you're not a missionary in some far off land doesn't mean you're not supposed to be involved sacrificially in the Great Commission. To the same degree, because you're here and there is no physical suffering imposed by governments or radical religious groups, don't think that it's not your obligation to seek out those who are suffering and to find a way to know about their suffering, pray about their suffering, and actually help them. You see? We will be, on the day of judgment, we will be examined not only with, with regard to our involvement in the local church and our care for the believers we can see, but we, especially in this day and age, when the world is so small through media, and communication, we'll also be responsible for how we responded to those of our brothers and sisters in Christ in need around the world. They should never be forgotten. 
Never. Now, I want you to look at a few things. He says, for, the, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Now, there's a couple hours right there of stuff that we could pull out, but I want to summarize this because we need, need to move on. I want us to look at some things that are very, very important. Why did Paul say this? Why did he start talking about the suffering of the churches in Judea? Well, there's a few reasons, I believe. Let me give you the first one. The Thessalonians needed to understand that suffering and affliction in the Christian life is not the exception. It's the norm. Now, why should someone know that? It's extremely powerful. If someone tells me, as so many preachers do, that the Christian life is all about a bed of roses, or when it doesn't turn out that way, I'm going to think the whole thing is false. It's going to weaken my faith. But when I know from the start that being a Christian in a fallen world is going to be difficult, then when difficulties come, I'm ready. This is what I expected. This is what they told me. You see how different biblical preaching is? And even biblical evangelism from the false bill of goods that people are being sold. And so you know, look, look in chapter 3, verse 3. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. We've been destined for this. Now, I, I don't want to go into this. This is another sermon, but I want you to look at everything. Every affliction, everything in your life was destined, was predestined by the hand of God. Know this about, it says of Joseph, that when he stood before Pharaoh, Pharaoh told him, except at your permission, no one will move their hand or foot in all of Egypt. When Jesus stood before God in His exaltation, I believe the same thing was communicated Know this, that without your permission, no one will move their hand or their foot in all of heaven, earth, or hell. So the hand that was raised up to cast the first stone at Stephen was only by the permission of a sovereign Lord. Now that's comforting to me. The, even the work of the enemy is under the sovereign control of my Savior. And they mean it for harm he means it for good. Now, I'm waxing bold right now, but I can tell you by experience that even though what I'm saying is true, the human side of us, when all hell breaks loose against us, it becomes difficult to be that bold. But we need to maintain that kind of boldness and that kind of confidence. So, we need to know that, that suffering and affliction or trials, they're not the exception in the Christian life. They are the rule. Now, another thing that they needed to know, he mentions the church in Judea. Why? Because where did persecution begin? It began in the church of Judea. Where was it at its hottest or its boiling point in the church of Judea? They were suffering like no one else. Now, why mention that? Because he's saying this basically. 
Persecution began in Judea. It is the boiling point of affliction. And yet, as strong as it is, the church in Judea remains alive and strong. If the enemy could not defeat the church in Judea, it will not be able to defeat the church here in Thessalonica. There has never been a time when an elect child of God has been defeated. Ultimately. Or in the end, destroyed or ruined. Every one has made his way to glory. You will too. You will too. I look in the mirror and I see my weakness. This is sometimes the only thing that holds me up. I'll make it. Because He carries me. I'll make it. Because He'll make me make it. Because His reputation is on the line. His reputation. Now, He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. You're suffering the same thing. Now, any temptation that's come upon you, is it new? Or is it common? It's common. What does that mean? There, are, there is no temptation that's ever going to come upon you. Any trial that already hasn't fallen upon countless believers. And did they prevail? Yes, they prevailed. Will you prevail? Yes. Hold on. Hold on. Don't give up. Now, he says in verse 15, oh, before we go on from there, there's something else that I need to say about this. Why did he mention the church in Judea? He wanted the church in Thessalonica to see something. That they were a part of something much larger than what their eye could behold or their mind could conceive. They were not just this tiny group of Gentiles that were suffering because of their identification with some seemingly insignificant and upstart Jewish sect. Now, if you were suffering everything because you were just a part of some little sect that appeared, there wouldn't be much power there, not for a reasonable person. But by joining with Christ... He wants them to see you've become a part of something much larger than yourself. And even though He doesn't mention it here, we can expand it. You've become a part of that great plan of redemption. You've become a part of that godly line that since the murder of Abel has suffered for righteousness. This is not some new thing. This is not some tiny localized battle. You have now become part of the battle of the cosmos between good and evil, between the line of the woman or the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You have become a part of God's gigantic redemptive plan. And this battle you're going through has eternal significance, not only for yourself, the entire kingdom. Now, 
How does that apply to you? Oh, brothers, I want you to know I draw the greatest strength from this truth. And I have for many years drawn the greatest strength from the truth I'm going to share with you. That if you are a believer, you are a part of the greatest saga, the greatest epic that the universe has ever known. And everything you do has an an immeasurable significance. Every battle with sin, every triumph over temptation, every good work that you do in His name, even giving a glass of water to a disciple because he is a disciple of Jesus, every bit of it has an eternal, global, cosmic Impact and will result in eternal glory. You don't have to watch a saga or an epic. You're a part of one. The greatest thing God has ever done. And that's just not the minister. That's not just the one who goes in and is preaching the Bible every day. But it's the one who goes off to a so-called secular job, even though that's not biblical, but does it for the glory of God and seeks to be a witness. Everything you do has an impact, an eternal significance. Isn't that a great encouragement? Sometimes there is a sense in which we we ought to be. I, I don't know how to say it. We ought to be almost more superlative or more childlike, story-like. It's like when I used to tell my little boys one day, Ian, years ago, asked me, he goes, Dad, what do you do? What do you do? You travel, you come back, you go to the jungle, you're eaten up by insects. What do you do? And I said, I can't tell you. He said, why? I said, you wouldn't believe me. What do you mean I wouldn't? You wouldn't believe me. So that, of course, piqued his interest. Well, Dad, what, what do you do? I said, son, I don't think you're ready for it. And I don't think you would believe me. And finally, he said, Dad, what did you do? So I said, okay. I fight dragons. He said, what? I said, I fight Dragons. Big ones. At night, you go by my room and see me praying. Get on a plane, go off to Asia or Africa. I fight dragons. He said, no, you don't. I said, you promised to believe me. You see, sometimes we're just too, I don't know what the word is, too small in our vision of what's really going on. You're a part of the greatest story ever told. And the significance is incredible. And and here's the thing. Every moment of your life, the most menial task is significant. 
As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if on the day of judgment, it, are, it is the most insignificant moments in our life that become the most significant. So that all the wisdom of man will be thrown down and the wisdom of God will prevail. Be encouraged, believers. Every moment's important. Every moment. Now, we go on. It said in verse 15, Who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Now, this is very, very strong language. The Apostle Paul against the unbelieving Jews. He, said they, he, he accuses them of killing the Lord Jesus, even though we know that Rome had the upper hand in the whole thing. And the prophets, this could refer to the, the prophets in the time of Paul, but I think more than likely it's inclusive of all the, the men who were ever sent to Israel. If you study the words of Christ and of the Old Testament, you see that, that they were constantly hostile to the prophets. And he said they drove us out. Literally, the Greek word is they persecuted us out. And then he goes on and he says, and they are not pleasing to God. What more terrible thing could be said? I mean, if you're going to be pleasing to someone, and you young people, believers, all of you, you listen to me. You want to be pleasing to someone, you're always acting to please someone. It may be a peer, it may be someone above you, it may be your own heart, but you're always acting to please someone. Let me recommend that if you're going to work to please someone, I would suggest you please Him. You please God. But they did not please God and they were also very hostile to all men. Now normally, this is interesting, normally someone who is pleasing to God is a friend of the world. But here, and someone who is unpleasing, to, or, or someone who, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Someone who is not pleasing to God is pleasing to the world. But here we see somebody who's not pleasing to God and they're not pleasing to the world. What does that mean? I want to tell you something about rejection of Christ, about rejection of God. The farther an individual or a group of individuals get away from God, the more hostile they become to one another. That's why you see our culture falling apart into giving itself over to violence. It is only as we draw near to Christ as a culture as a people, as a church, that we put away violence and we put on love. We put on love. But he says this about them. Now, let me say a few things because Paul's words have been criticized throughout history. Very criticized as being too harsh. But first of all, let me say this. Paul himself was a Jew. That's something to think about. Secondly, another thing, you need to understand this in the context of Romans chapter 9, verses 1 and 3, where Paul demonstrates such a love for his unbelieving people that he's willing to be counted accursed on their behalf. Let me share something with you about those of you who may want to be a prophet. If you're going to speak a prophet's hard words, you have to have a prophet's heart. He may be as crusty as a rock on the outside, but if he's truly a man of God proclaiming truth in a hard way, he is also willing to count himself accursed that the people to whom he is proclaiming the word might be saved. So I read an old pietist one time. He said, a prophet doesn't carry a sword in his hand. 
carries a towel and a hoe. A towel to wash the feet. And a hoe to cultivate virtue and kindness. Paul was like that. Yes, he's speaking the truth. Everything he's saying is true. And it's got an edge on it that will cut you to pieces. Yet this is coming out of a man who's willing to be accounted accursed for the sake of those to whom he's preaching. Another thing that I want you to think about is these harsh words are spoken even far more harshly throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the whole Testament. If you read, there are some things the prophets were commanded to say to the unbelieving Jews in the Old Testament that I do not feel comfortable mentioning in mixed company. That's how hard they spoke against the sins of the people of Israel. Another thing that I want you to think about, remember what Elijah said, Lord, they've torn down your altars. They've killed the prophets. I'm the only one left. Remember what Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. And those that are sent to you, Stephen, before he is stoned to death, said, which one of the prophets did your fathers not kill? So you have to understand that. What Paul is speaking here is the truth. Also, even until the third century, Tertullian says this in one of his writings. He says, the synagogue of the Jews, the fountain or fountainhead of persecution. It's true what he's Saying, and yet, I want you to realize this. This is just one part of Paul's speech. Because when he speaks about the rulers of the world being lifted up against the Christ, he's also including the Gentiles. I also want to remind you that after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., it was basically the Gentile nations that took over the persecution. And for the last 1,800 years, it has been the Gentile nations that have ripped the church apart. Also, I want you to realize this, that it is our great hope that though there is a hardening and a blindness now, that one day that will be removed and we will see a great coming of the Jewish nation to Christ, through Christ. So now, let's go on. Verse 16, he says, they were hindering, they're hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Now, the idea here is one of continuance. They were constantly hindering. Constantly hindering. What were they doing? They were carrying on the sins of the Pharisees. And this has application to us, so we need to be very, very careful. They were continuing the sin of the Pharisees. Remember what Jesus said? Woe to you, Pharisees. You do not enter in. You do not permit others from entering in. There are many people associated with the church today of, of whom the same thing can be said. You're not coming in. You're not entering into the kingdom. And with your lifestyle, you are prohibiting others from entering in. You are a hindrance. And when we hear words like this, we always need to ask ourselves, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Am I being a hindrance? Linsky says this. I think it is very, very important. He says, the worst feature of unbelief is not its own damnation, but its effort to frustrate the salvation of others. 
And that's what we see here. The Jews were not content with just rejecting Paul and kicking him out of their of their Judea. They were following him around. They were following him everywhere they could find him in order to destroy, undercut, hinder his ministry. Now, I want to say something really quick. I want to read a quote from Hebert. Listen to this that he writes about the Jewish nation because it can apply to us. While beginning as a nation divinely called to be a separate people, the Jews had become a sinfully exclusive and bigoted nation. When God overruled their perverted nationalism by bringing in the Gentiles, they reacted in bitter hostility. You and I are called to be a separate people. We're called to be holy. But you and I can develop a them and us mentality in which we become exclusive, mean-spirited, bitter, judgmental. And when we do that as a church, we've lost our redemptive purpose. And we may sit here as a holy club talking about how clean we are, and yet Jesus Christ has removed our candlestick and we're nothing more than a bunch of legalistic moralists. Without the Spirit of God. Yes, we are to be holy. But we are not to be exclusive and mean-spirited. And we also have got to recognize that God looks at the heart. Yes, doctrine is important. That's been said over and over and over. And of recent years, more and more. And it's true. But I want you to know something. He not only looks at a person's doctrine. He looks at his heart. And sometimes when all those with the really good doctrine have nothing but hard hearts, God will raise up someone who's not as pristine in their doctrine, but most certainly is more pristine in his heart. That has happened over and over and over. He doesn't do it because doctrine's not important. He does it as a rebuke to those who think that Christianity is just all about doctrine. It's about conformity to the image of of Jesus Christ. Extremely important. Now, he goes on and he says something rather terrifying. He says, they always fill up the measure of their sin, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. They always fill up the measure of their sin. What does this mean? It appears that it is allocated, now listen to me very carefully, that it is allocated to both individuals and nations a certain measure of rebellion. And then after that comes the irrevocable judgment of God when the bell tolls. I want you to listen to the commentary writer Tasker, he said, God delays the display of his wrath till offenders have reached a kind of saturation point beyond which they may not pass. Isn't it amazing that every nation and every unbelieving individual, their next step could be their last And don't think because this nation or a certain individual or nation is still in existence that judgment hasn't fallen. No, the bell could have already rung. Never forget, 
that when you cut a flower, it is dead the moment it is cut. But it may take a while before the death of that thing becomes apparent. A nation could be existing and yet be dead, cut off. Already judgment decreed. Irrevocable judgment. An individual may experience the very same thing. And that, my friend, is a solemn truth to think about. Now, he goes on and he says, they fill up the measure of their sins. Present tense. The idea is a continuation. He's saying that these unbelieving Jews were constantly reaching that saturation point and were constantly under the judgment or wrath of God. Now, he says something very difficult to interpret here. He says, but the wrath, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost or to the end. Now, what does he mean? Because he's using an aorist here, but the idea is one of, of past in this particular context. We know that Paul wrote this letter before 70 A.D., so he's not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. We definitely know he's not talking about eschatological judgment or the judgment of the final days or the final judgment. So to what is Paul referring? Well, first of all, I want you to understand something. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 36, that for those who were not believing, the wrath of God was already abiding upon them. You've got to realize that for the unbelieving, there is already a sense of the wrath of God abiding upon them. And that should bring urgency to them to want to repent. But it should bring urgency to us to beseech them, to implore them to repent. Because they're not going to be in a fearful condition. They are in a fearful condition. Another thing that we might be seeing here is Paul's reference to the wrath of God having already come could be the hardening and blinding of Israel as a nation so that many, many generations have failed to see the Messiah and have even rebelled further than a reasonable man would. Paul could also be talking about a judgment or a wrath that has been decreed and not yet poured out. And this is where sinners commit great folly. Because they don't see manifestations of wrath. They consider that there is no wrath against them. And they continue mocking God. And what they do not realize is that wrath has already been decreed. It is already fixed. It is also in this lane, or in this vein of thinking, it could be possible that Paul is using what we would call a prophetic aorist. That even though he's talking in past time, what he's doing is this. He's referring to a future event that is so certain that he always already considers it as something already done. Now, we live in a society where a student can literally not study all semester in many cases, be lazy in absolutely everything, and when the teacher gives him a warning on the final week of school and he says something like this, oh, but profi, please, you know, Give me a report or something I can do. And we live in a culture where the teacher will do that. God's not of this culture. In the end, there will be no make-up exam. There will be no way to make up anything. But to hear the words, it's over. It's over. It's over. It's terrifying, but it's true. 
Now, quickly, let's go to verse 17. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit. We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. He says, but we, brethren. And here he's contrasting himself with the enemies that are persecuting the church. And he says, we have been taken away from you for a short while. The word taken away. Now listen very carefully in Greek. Aporfaniso. Did you catch it? Ap orphan niso. And what is Paul literally saying? We have been orphaned from you. We have been made orphans. That's what the word means. Now, can you think of anything more gut wrenching and heart wrenching to a child than to be in the arms of of his or her mother or father, and all of a sudden they're torn out of the arms of their parents and left abandoned and orphaned. Paul is saying, that's the way I feel. Now why is he saying this? Not simply to demonstrate his affection, but also because I believe there were accusations against him that when all the trouble started, Paul took off. After all, when the Thessalonians were called into court, Paul didn't appear. He didn't appear because the Thessalonians sent him away. He wanted to go. But his enemies are using this. Ah, Paul's just a hireling. When the wolf comes, he runs. He uses passive tense. No, brothers, I was ripped away from you like a child being ripped out of its mother's arms. Now, how do we apply this to us? Of course, pastors and elders should feel that way. When they're not with their congregation. But not only them. Every one of us. I have to admit that when I'm, I know I'm going to go on a journey, that I start counting the days that I return before I even leave. I do. And when I'm gone on a journey, I feel ripped out of the arms of my wife and my children. I can hardly stand it. I would do this for no one but Jesus. No one. We are really developing a community here when all of us have this kind of sense for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that when they're gone, or when we're gone from them, it rips out our heart. Now, not in a cult-like fashion. What do I mean by that? Your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ should not diminish your love for your families, your unbelieving families, and your unbelieving friends. It should increase it. Nonetheless, you and I should have a love for one another that when we don't see one another here, it hurts us. Now, guys, this is not something that, that a pastor can bestow upon you. But you need to look at that. This is real and vital Christianity. Do you see that? Pray for this. Earnestly desire. Cultivate these kind of relationships so that you hurt. You almost get angry when you're pulled away. Okay, so he says, in person, not in spirit. And literally he says, in face and not in heart. I can't see your face, but you're in my heart. Now that, that's a pastor's heart. I can't see your face, but you're in my heart. And again, is this only for pastors or elders or preachers or ministers? Absolutely not. I can't see your face, but you're in my heart. And when I don't see your face... It bothers my heart. You see, that's the way you and I 
must learn to be. If, if it's a church, a church is not to be event-oriented or program-oriented. It is to be relational. And if we, the reason why we have to make all these programs, our programs have to be made, is because the real stuff isn't there. But it depends on each one of us so loving the other that we hurt when they're not here. Now, he says, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. We vehemently, earnestly made every absolute possible attempt to see your face with all desire. I mean, that's, that's the type of emphasis Paul is giving here. Why? Again, to assure them of his love, but also to defeat the accusations of the enemies that were against him. Now he says, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, not just Silas, not just Timothy, not just some worker I was going to send. He says, I wanted to come to you more than once, literally here, once and twice, which is an idiomatic expression in Greek for many times. I wanted to come to you more than once. I made every attempt to do so. And yet what happened? Satan hindered us. Now, what do we learn from this phrase? Well, there's very important things. And we're coming, coming to a close here. Some very important things. First of all, these were Gentiles. He mentions Satan. Now think about this. He mentions Satan. And he doesn't explain who he is. Now, these are Gentiles and they're fairly new converts. And he mentions Satan, but he doesn't tell them who he is. How did they know about him? Well, they didn't get it from their own pagan religions. Where did they get it? This tells me something very important. That although teaching about the devil was not, prior, was not a priority, or at all preeminent in the teaching of the apostles. It was an important part of their discipleship. They taught believers about the devil so that they would not be ignorant of his schemes. Now, why is that important to us? There are so many false teachers and false movements out there. And what are they doing? They talk more about the devil than they do Jesus Christ. And what are we? Oftentimes we're reactionary. And so we don't talk about him at all. Do you see that? And so I'm not saying that we need to have a seminar on who the devil is, but here's the thing. It is biblical to know your enemy and you need to be careful of overreaction against false doctrine or false emphasis because it can drive you to create a false emphasis on the other side. Remember, as Conrad Merle used to say, you can walk a thousand miles that way and a thousand miles that way and be in falsehood, but to walk in the truth is like walking on the edge of a razor blade and you can fall off either side. Too much preoccupation with the devil is a grievous error. Ignorance of his schemes is also a grievous error. You see, that's one thing we need to know. Secondly, we need to know this. He said Satan hindered us. The word literally means, well... 
It means the idea is to cut, but it was used in later Greek, not very far removed from Paul. It was used in later Greek to describe what an army would do when they were in battle. They would go in after they would travel down a road and got to the place they wanted to be. They would literally cut that road to pieces. And why would they cut it to pieces? So that the other army couldn't cross it. So the other army couldn't use it. And that's exactly what Paul's talking here. He said, we went down a road, Satan cut it to pieces. We went down this road, and Satan cut it to pieces. Now, what does this tell us? Well, there's some very important truths you need to learn here. Yes, God is sovereign. But, there is a devil, and there is a real battle that we've been given to fight, and Satan can hinder and frustrate us in our plans. He can hinder and frustrate us in our ministries. He can really do stuff to sidetrack us, hinder us, and cut us off. And as Paul talks about the Jews hindering him, so can wicked men. So can wicked men. Now, why is this important? When Paul talks about wicked men hindering and about Satan hindering, he is not saying that Satan or those wicked men ultimately triumph. He is not saying that there are people out there, the elect of God, who won't be saved because wicked men and the devil have joined forces and hindered him in his preaching. But what he is saying is that there is a real battle let me put it this way. God wins the war. There are many battles and some of them can be lost. They can. People can be derailed. All sorts of things can happen. And we need to be vigilant because our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Alright? But here's what you need to see. Even though Satan and wicked men can frustrate our plans... And they can seem to apparently prevail for a time. In the end, God will accomplish all the things He has decreed and will even use the evil of wicked men and Satan to accomplish that task. Let me give you an example. Because of the persecution, the Gospel spread. In what way? Well, first of all, in Jerusalem. What happened? Persecution and the church took off. Went to every part of Judea and beyond. Let me give you another example. People were amazed at the testimony of the Thessalonians, not just because they received the word, but they received the word in the midst of much persecution and with joy. And that was the thing that astounded the other Gentiles and drew them to the gospel. So the persecution that sent Satan and wicked men meant for evil, God used for good. Also, look at the life of the Apostle Paul. If there was anyone who could have been exalted, because of his spiritual achievements or the things that he had seen, going places no man had ever gone before, seeing things no man had ever seen, being a steward of the great mysteries of God in Christ, if anybody could have been exalted, it was the Apostle Paul. But it was that thorn in his flesh that kept him walking humbly before God and he maintained his status as a useful servant. And by the way, that thorn in the flesh, it's very difficult to identify and no one has a sure word on that, but you need to understand something. It's very possible that Paul's thorn in the flesh was not a medical ailment, even though it could have been. 
It could have also been this band of Jews that followed Him literally everywhere He went. And literally attacked Him constantly. That could have been His thorn in the flesh. And then look at this. Spurgeon. I've got a book in my library about Spurgeon that is just basically newspaper articles. And things such as that. He was so lied about and slandered and defiled and mocked like you could not believe. I have seen pictures, drawings and sketchings from newspapers of Whitfield where they accused him of absolutely everything imaginable as, as making people insane and crazy, even demon-possessed. Immoralities, everything else. I want you to know that God uses these things in the life of a man of God or any believer to keep him where he ought to be. Now, let us finish. He says, For who is our joy? Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? Now, Jesus is our hope. So why is Paul saying that the Thessalonians are His hope? Well, he's using it in a different context. That's why you need to always consider context whenever you're studying the Scriptures. But here's what I want you to see. They were Paul's hope that he had not run in vain. That his life was fruitful. That he was really being used of God. As he looked at them continuing on, realizing the labor that he had poured out for them day and night. Day and night. Their continuation gave him hope that he was really called of God, that he was really in the right place, that his life was really fruitful. Isn't it amazing that the Apostle Paul would need some kind of assurance like this? They were his hope. And they were his joy. Now, they were his joy Godward that that he would present them one day with great joy to God. But they were His joy also believer word. For as John said in in 3 John chapter 4, I have no greater joy than this than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Then He says also crown of boasting. The word crown here, Stephanos, it's not the crown you would see on the crown you would see on the Queen of England. But it's the crown you would see on on an Olympic victor. On someone who had won the race or the wrestling match. It was a, a, a wreath, a garland. It would be placed upon his head by the king or some leading authority that was present at the games. And Paul says literally, here we have exaltation, but the word is literally boasting. And what does it mean? And don't be super spiritual on my answer. Because this is not beneath a godly person. As that athlete stands there and he's crowned with that garland, there is a sense of exultation. There is a sense of satisfaction. There is a sense of accomplishment. And that's what Paul's talking about. So don't be overly spiritual and think that these kinds of things are beneath a Christian. Absolutely not. A sense, a weight of reward. Looking at them and seeing them continue on, they will be my reward. My running has not been in vain. 
I will be crowned a champion on that day. Now, I know this could be taken so out of context and probably will be. But do you have any sense like that in you? Of wanting to be crowned a victor? Of wanting to accomplish the race with credentials? Of the joy of of walking in glory with a sense of accomplishment? I see so many believers that have they, they not only do not have this sense in their heart, but they look down on it and disdain it. And I tell them that this is a great incentive. If Christ despised the suffering because of what waited for Him, the joy that was awaiting Him, the reward that was awaiting Him, is it beneath us to desire the same? Now don't come to me and say, well, Brother Paul, we're to do everything for the glory of God. I know that and what I'm saying is in that context. But also, you need to have this sense of, I am in this race, in this fight. I want to see it through. I want a crown. This is what truly puts some women, I apologize, it's the only term I can find that puts some manliness back in this race. Kills some of this passivity that I'm constantly seeing. Just kills it. And then he goes on and he says, Our exaltation, our crown of exaltation, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? Now, I don't want to get fidgety here, but I just want to share with you something. A pastor can do great damage to a congregation. Do you understand? We've seen it, all of us, some degree, maybe from afar. A pastor can hurt a congregation. But have you ever thought this way? A congregation can hurt a pastor. See, a a pastor's hope, joy, crown of exaltation is wrapped up in His people. It's wrapped up in them. It's wrapped up in you. At least in part. Again, we could preach on that for a while, couldn't we? But we've got to come to an end. He says, for you are our glory and our joy. Now here at this ending part, Paul adds glory to the rest of it. Hope, joy, crown of exaltation. Now he says glory. The word is doxa. It can mean praise, fame, or honor. Paul's looking at this church that he planted and said, you are my praise. My praise. Now, that's what he says. My fame. You're my honor. He's saying that on that day, if I have labored legally, if I have labored according to the will of God, if I have built upon that only foundation Christ, You remain faithful. You will result in my fame before God. Even my praise from God. Now, in order to substantiate my claim, 
I want to read to you some verses. And then we'll draw this to a close. In John 5.44, How can you believe, Jesus said, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Jesus is saying you need to seek the glory that is from God. The praise. The honor. You're seeking praise and honor from men. You need to seek praise and honor from God. Listen to this, John 12, 43. For they, the rulers, love the approval, doxa, glory. They love the approval of men rather than the approval, glory of God. And then finally, the most telling text is 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And listen carefully. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This might be one element of your Christianity that you haven't thought much about. The approval, the honor, the praise that comes from God to His faithful servants. Now again, I am thoroughly reformed in the five solas. I understand that everything that is done is done for the glory of God. And that eclipses absolutely everything. But I'm not going to rip these texts out of the Bible. They're there. Allow them to be an incentive to you to run the race, to fight the good fight, and to look forward to that day. And finally, see the other believers in this church as your hope. Because this is not just about a pastor pouring his life into a group of believers so that they walk in a manner worthy. But each member, according to his gifts and callings, needs to be ministering to other believers in this congregation so that this congregation also is your hope and your glory on the day of Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Well, it's good if you do. It's even better if you live according to it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Oh, dear God, so much incentive. So much impulse. So much fuel. Open Your Word to us, Lord, that we truly, truly, truly live this life. In Jesus' name. Amen.